Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello and welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I have a couple of items to mention before we begin this episode. Uh, the first is that there is a TAT event upcoming. That's November the 10th through the 12th. There is a retreat happening at the TAT Foundation Center in North Carolina. And the title of that is Knowing by Identity. There will be several guest speakers, including Arma Pundir, Paul Rezendez, Mike Gagenheimer, and Paul Constant. I certainly recommend that if you uh, are even thinking about attending or any possibility of attending this event that you sign up for it. It's coming up very quick, so hopefully uh, you can make it. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that I have a new t-shirt design. Uh, this one a friend helped me with. Uh, we've called it Christ in the Desert, and it is based around a relatively famous painting by Ivan Kremskoy called Christ in the Desert. You definitely want to take a look at it. It'd be a nice Christmas gift, I think, for yourself or a friend. And you can see that at spiritualteachers.org and just click on the store button. Now that those items are out of the way, on to the episode. So I have Augie Turak as my guest. Augie was the first student of Richard Rose, and he played a very important role in my spiritual path as he essentially introduced me to the entire idea of the spiritual search. And uh, he was the founder of the Self-Knowledge Symposium, which I was very involved with for a number of years. Augie has a new book out. It's called Not Less Than Everything, One Man's Quest for Spiritual Enlightenment, and it's basically the story of his spiritual search, which culminated in an enlightenment experience. This is a really good episode. Uh, I was very happy for the opportunity to speak with Augie, and it definitely took me back to my days in the Self-Knowledge Symposium, where I found him so inspiring. There are probably dozens of quotable quotes in this episode, so I hope that you enjoy it. So my guest this episode is Augie Turak. Augie has a new book out. It's called Not Less Than Everything, One Man's Quest for Spiritual Enlightenment. So that book alone would be enough to make Augie a worthy person to appear on this podcast. Uh, but Augie is also one of the first students of Richard Rose, who many of you are familiar with Richard Rose. Uh, he also founded the Self-Knowledge Symposium, uh, which played a huge role in my spiritual search. And I definitely have a debt of gratitude for Augie, who basically launched my spiritual search and really got me interested in, in this realm. Uh, Augie also, I mean, he has quite the resume. He worked with the founder of the IBM Executive School. He worked with a, I'm just reading off the back cover of the book right now. He was a client of a mystical psychologist doing government-funded research with LSD, a member of the original team that launched 
MTV and a successful high tech entrepreneur. I don't have forget, don't forget that long. Don't forget the long time part time Trappist monk. The uh, the long time part time Trappist monk, and we'll definitely delve into uh, your experience with the Trappist. That's particularly interesting to me, uh, especially because being from Kentucky. Uh, I'm Gethsemane. to the Abbey of Gethsemane. Yeah, beautiful place. So I definitely like to, to talk about that some today. I wanted to start off by asking you, uh, because I, ha I have a memory, which could be mistaken, of sitting in Mr. Rose's kitchen in the mid-90s, and I feel like he told me he had a manuscript of a book by you about his about your time with him. Is that possible? That you've been working on this since those days? I don't know if I ever showed him back in the late 80s when I was living in Raleigh in Autumn Chase. I started writing a book about him. As a matter of fact, it was my early christening of, uh, of learning how to use a computer because I had written about 10 chapters and didn't save anything. And my brother walked in and turned off the off the computer <laughs> i lost it all 10 chapters he recovered everything but two chapters so i don't know if and uh and that was just about him and um my experiences with him and uh, richard rose and i oh by the way i want to correct you i was his first student it's not, not just not of. just not one of i was his very first student um but uh i don't know if i ever showed him that um or not but because it was a piece of crap. I mean, uh, um, this book has been a long time in development because I actually wrote another manuscript of it back in 2006. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and, for, and I actually had a contract with Harper Collins, the big publishing house. And I wrote a, a, a manuscript at that point and, uh, and they rejected it. Uh. And, uh, um, so I've, it's taken a long time. You know, it, a lot of it has been just learning how to write. It's taken years and years and years. And I was wise enough with this book, by the way, with not less than everything, this version of it, um, to hire a, a coach out of California who would help me. My first book was called Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And that came out of an article that appeared in Forbes and went uh, viral. And then Columbia Business School called me and asked, publishing, Columbia Business School Publishing, asked me to make it into a book. And uh, at that time, I had a, uh, an agent. And uh, she, ha you have to do a book proposal for all this stuff. So she um, had this guy, Alex Schnitzler, who, work, who who teaches creative writing at Southern Cal. And he also does all kinds of ghostwriting. And, and he helped me put together the um, book proposal. And we hit it off. And I got lost touch with him for all these years. And when I started back into this project, I got in touch with him. I never met the man. And he was absolutely critically important. He didn't write any of the book. It's not, my book's not ghostwritten in any way. He didn't write a single word, but he gave me, you know, like being a really hard taskmaster English teacher, he, he gave me a lot of really good ideas about what was wrong with that earlier manuscript and why it was a piece of crap, mm -hmm. uh, which, um, you know, which I'm really, really thrilled to think we really uh, fixed those things in, the, in this version of the book. This is a thousand times better book than the book I sent to Harper Collins 15 years ago. What was it that happened in that intervening 15 years that, that made you decide? I assume you haven't been writing, revising it for 15 years. Was there something that, that spurred you to get it done? Well, they, 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 um, 
the virus. I was. Uh, I also came out with another book called Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life back in 2018 or whatever. And that book is based on the thing that got me into writing because my Duke students, the Self-Knowledge Symposium Duke students, convinced me to enter a writing contest back in 2004. And you had to answer the question, what is the purpose of life in 3,500 words or less? And I had like a week to do it, and I banged it out, and I won the $100,000 grand prize. And um, for my essay, Brother John, which getting back to the Trappist was about one of the Trappist monks. And um, and it was uh, and over the years, I would get these emails from people or letters sometimes. And actually, somebody came to my house to say that this book, that, this, that the essay, they'd stumbled across the essay on the Internet somewhere. And, it's, and in, in the case of the guy that came to my house, it saved his life. He was suicidal. Um, and he actually went to the monastery based on reading my essay. And uh, they straightened him out. He stayed there for six months. He was an executive with BB&T Bank. And as he was sitting on my porch, I said to him, uh, it's really tight. She drove all the way up here just to thank me. And I said, I'm very touched, but I also feel guilty. And he said, why would you feel guilty? I said, because you're not the first person who's written, but it's almost unheard of. Nobody knows about this essay anymore. So I have a candle under a bushel basket. So as soon as he left, I have this nonprofit corporation. Um, and there's a woman named Melissa who runs it for me. And I said, Melissa, we've got to act on, we got to come out with a book, make Brother John into a book. So we got this artist to do um, these paintings, 22 oil paintings of Mepkin Abbey Monastery, where the story takes place. It's a Christmas Eve encounter between me and a Trappist monk that teaches me the purpose of life. And, um, and so we came out with this illustrated book called Brother John, a monk, um, a pilgrim and the purpose of life. It's Brother John, a monk, a pilgrim and the purpose of life. So that was back in 2017 or 18. So then these books have done very well. Brother, my first book's been translated into all these different languages and stuff. So I got an invitation to come to Ro go to Rome and speak to the pontifical universities there. And so my two brothers decided to go with me as my wingmen, and we didn't make it into like a two week vacation. <clears throat> After my lectures were over, we were going to, I'd never been to Rome. And then this was February 29th of 2020, or whenever it was. Yeah, 2020 was. So, and uh, so I get a telephone call because of the virus. They're canceling uh, my talk. And of course, they're still going to pay me and they're going to refund all my expenses and everything. But my brothers were still on the hook for their airfare. And we'd all re rented this B and Airbnb. So we said, the heck with it. Let's go anyway. And because the virus was still up in um, northern Italy at the time. So we got to Rome, and it was amazing because we had Rome to ourselves. There was nobody in, in the, all the tourists had left, but all the stuff was still open. So we went to the Sistine Chapel, for example, with twelve people, with no outlines, with no waiting. Everything was everything was like that. So it was like we were in the eye of this hurricane, and we had Rome to ourselves for ten days. So when I got back, of course, then everything shut down. And I thought, well, what am I going to do while everything is shut down? And then I was going through some emails or something. I saw Alex Schnitzler my old, this writing coach I mentioned, and, his e and I read this email that he had written me 12, 13 years ago. And I thought, wow, that's really a good email. He had, ex he had given me some critiques of my writing and things to remember. And I realized that I'd, that I'd taken the advice without even realizing it in, in the way I structured my first book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And, and I, I was also really impressed by how well written his letter to me, his email to me was. It was so I said, what the heck? I wonder if this email is still still uh, good. So I banged off an email. I said, Alex, are you still out there? He came back right away. Yeah, I'm still out here. I said, hey, I, by the way, I said, I got you online. I got all this stuff. I got these two manuscripts because 
um, in 2009, I, re I went, <laughs> you got to follow this. You, you asked the question, so you're in for it. Yeah. So I started working on this book about Rose and back in the 1980s. I dropped that. So then I write this big thing that was the predecessor to this, not less than everything manuscript. And then in 2009, I went back to the Rose book and wrote another draft of that. So now I had these two manuscripts. So Alex says, send me everything you got. So it was like 800 pages or something like that. I got from So after uh, he write, he gets back to me a month later and he says, neither one of these manuscripts is a book, but there's a lot of great stories in here. He said, so, um, but I, and I think we could make, make it into a really, really good book. And he gave me, um, he gave me some amazing uh, uh, advice. He, two, two really, well, three really important things that he did for the book. The first thing was, he, he said, what's missing from this book is you. He said, um, he said, you, he said, are you comfortable being the star of your own book, the protagonist? And I said, yes. And then I said, oh, no, he said, that's what's obvious. He said, if you go to your brother, John essay, he said, brother, John is not the star. He's not the hero. You're the hero. Brother John is the saint, but the reader identifies with you and the traumas that you're going through and the doubts and the agonies that you're going through. You, so they take the journey with you. Yeah. So brother John is the, is the star, but I mean, you're, you're the, you're, you're the protagonist. And he said, um, and that's what makes brother, the, your essay so good. He said, and that's, what's missing from these things. He said, you have to be willing to, to open up the kimono and, and, and be with, be the person that the, uh, that the reader can take the trip with. He said, secondly, he said, why did you get into spiritual work? And I said, oh man, Alex, I've never, I've never been able to answer that question for him. I just was called to it. I don't know. It was a vocation, but nobody wants to hear that. That's so odd. He said, that ain't going to cut it. People are going to want to know why you chose to do to live your life um, the way you decided to live your life from such an early age when you're only in college. And, um, and so, so much of the stuff what I always thought about when I went back was I thought about the aspirational stuff, about the inspirational stuff, about reading books about enlightenment and Satori and cosmic consciousness and Alan Watts and how inspirational. What I I wasn't suppressing anything. I was you know nothing came out in the writing of this book that was like these great revelations, but it was a big revelation that how important depression was. Um, that that's what I was really running away from. Uh, depression, and I was looking to cosmic consciousness or spirituality to rescue me from despair and, and depression. And you know, Rose early on in the book says, "You remind me of the boy with the burning feet." And I think you're just going to have to keep running and running until you just get too damn tired to run anymore. I had no idea what he meant at the time, but it's very clear to me now. And the third thing he gave me was just the idea of. Um, uh, he said, "Let's use the um, your skydiving accident and and your 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 spiritual experience at the end as the end um, as the end cap, so to speak. So we'll start with you jumping out of the airplane, and let's just see how it goes. And uh, and it worked. And um, so he those were the three things. And of course, what I did as each each chapter that I wrote, I would send it to Alex, and then he would just." tear into it and tear it, tear it to pieces and critique the hell out of it and mark it all up. 
and send it back to me and make me rewrite it, rewrite it and rewrite it. So um, in that sense, he was just like a really good English teacher. Um, and he taught me a lot about, you know, I learned a lot about writing. Um, you know, for example, one of the big things that he was always a big, it was set and setting, making sure you, he's, he was, he was always saying, be very careful that you don't, especially with your dialogue, that it becomes disembodied. If you're having this long conversation with somebody and there's nothing but the conversation, you know, you need to mention the fact that he, he suddenly coughed or even, you know, Mr. Rose putting his, that key in his ear that time, you know, to scratch his ear with the, with the key, you, you got to add those details to ground, to ground it. So anyway, he was very, very critical. Uh, I really, and I, he's a great guy and I really enjoyed, um, you know, work with him. And I was really excited because the, we, the, he started out just very professionally. He's Jewish. I have no idea even to this day how spiritual he is or isn't. He didn't talk about much of that kind of stuff. But as he, when he got into the book, he became more and more passionate about it. Um, and he actually, by the end, he was very disappointed that I chose to independently publish it. He really thought I should have gone back to HarperCollins or <clears throat> some other big publishing house. Um, but for a number of reasons, I didn't want to do that. And I'm still glad I didn't do that. Um, you know, I didn't want to get into problems with political correctness or <clears throat> say the wrong thing on the Sean Nevins podcast. And suddenly, you know, they pull my book out of Amazon because they were, you know, because they're ashamed of me for whatever it is I said. So I, I, I don't want to, you know, deal with the, uh, with the publishing, but I was very, 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 very flattered that if somebody who I had so much respect for became such a huge fan uh, by the end of not less than everything. Well, I definitely found it a very readable book. I probably finished it in four or five days, which is very quick for me these days when I may go months before I finish a book. I want to ask you a question. At the very back of the book, there is the mission statement for the August Turak Foundation. Mm -hmm. Our mission is to bring a transformative message of higher meaning and purpose to a Western culture increasingly bereft of meaning and purpose. Right. Do you feel like uh, part of the mission for this book is connected to that? Oh, absolutely. I said so much, said so in the, in the introduction. Um, I was thinking about that today. The first part of it, I said I wrote the book for three reasons. One, I just wanted to write a really good spiritual adventure story. Um, or just a rattling good story. I mean, and it's great. I just got heard from somebody yesterday who I don't know. He said, he said, I'm halfway through your book. He said, it's killing me. The suspense is killing me. So I'm getting really good feedback from people. They're just saying they enjoy the story. Um, I said, second of all, I want to reintroduce the miraculous cosmic to the, to the spiritual conversation. You know, uh, I said that, you know, modern we've demythologized everything. When you read you know, reductionism and demythologizing so that so that nobody wants to talk about spirituality. I just actually saw uh, somebody sent me a uh, a woman who's uh, kind of a, you know, I've met through Facebook, who's read all my books and stuff. And she's uh, helping some uh, uh, Hotchkiss graduate. I went to the Hotchkiss school and this kid supposedly apparently did too. And he's trying to get into college. And she sent this essay of him and she said um, that he wrote. He's, you know, all these experiences and he has a, a lot of varied experiences and stuff he's been through, but she said, he's a very, very profoundly Catholic boy, you know, and he doesn't mention anything about his Catholicism in his essay. 
because that's poison, you know? So not only have we demythologized and really lumped all of us, quote unquote, spirituality into superstition um, or even something you should be ashamed of, or if to the extent that it's permitted, it's really, as Joseph Campbell said, only, uh, only about health, wealth, and progeny. <laughs> it's all about human compatibility and being nice to each other and, you know, and making sure you, you know, you're, you're faithful to your wife. The idea of the miraculous, of the, of the stuff that I'm in you have been so interested in enlightenment and cosmic consciousness and Satori and Sahaji and uh, Nerva Kalpa Samadhi and all these, 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 these things, um, Unio Mystico, this is the kind of stuff that you don't hear, um, uh, you know, and the fact that this stuff is real. Somebody said to me, one of the nicest, um, actually it was Ray Sosco. I don't know if you were ever, ever met, you know, Ray, no, you don't know Ray, but never Ray, met him. I know the name. And, and Bob, oh, Bob Sergal said it. No, it wasn't Ray. It was Bob Sergal. And you do know Bob Sergal very well. And Bob Sergal said about, and he's one of the original Rose um, um, students. And he said, this book's a masterpiece. He said, oh, yeah, this is like one of those Don Juan books that were so incredibly popular back in the 70s. He said, except it's real. It's true. And that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to say, listen, this miraculous stuff, this, these, these, this cosmic stuff is is paranormal stuff, whatever you want to call it, is real if you're willing to go look for it and it's worth looking for. And then the final thing I said, we're, 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 we're beset by all this doom and gloom and dystopia, you know? I, I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the CDC just said 57% of all young girls are, r- report being constantly sad and 30% of teenage girls report seriously considered suicide. 40% of incoming freshmen at schools like Duke are all on antidepressants. You know, boys are living in their parents' basements or they're shooting up schools. Uh, they don't want to get, they don't want, they don't, they're not, they, they call it, there's a whole terminology for it. It's called failure to launch. More and more boys aren't, are failing to launch. You know, the, the World Health Organization says depression is the number one um, disease afflicting uh, America and even Western civilization, and the list of the opioid epidemic, and then the suicide epidemic, this teenagers committing suicide. Every school's got a suicide helpline in it. We didn't have a suicide helpline when I was a kid, probably not when you were either. Now every school's got to have a suicide helpline. Um, something is rotten in Denmark. And, um, and I, and I, I quote um, Andrew Sullivan in the introduction where he said, America pioneered he wrote a beautiful, I really highly recommend it. It's so beautifully written too. Made me very jealous of somebody who struggles to write. Uh, he wrote a th- an article for New York Magazine called The Poison We Pick. You can get it online. Just look it up. It's called The Poison We Pick. And it's about the opioid epidemic, ostensibly. But he keeps coming back to the fact that he keeps saying, if you think this is a chemically addictive problem that can be solved medically, he said, you're missing something. The despair that makes so many people want to fly away. This is a spiritual crisis. He said opioids are just one of the ways, and I like to emphasize, just one of the ways that people are trying to deal with a a strange new world. He said America invented modern life. Now millions of people are taking opioids to escape it. We live in a strange new world where everything is flat, where communication is virtual, and those core elements of human happiness, faith, family, community, seem to elude so many. 
And he said, until we reinvent our religion, find a new religion, blah, blah, blah. He said, I'm afraid the poppy will flourish. And to me, all of these pr problems, and I list many more in the introduction of my book, um, are only symptoms of a single disease. It's a spiritual crisis. You know, Carl Jung said, uh, whether man exists or whether God exists or not is a legitimate question. That man needs a God is an irrefutable fact. Um, we, uh, we need a spirit. We, and I, that's what I'm defining as higher meaning and purpose. And this goes all the way back to my original essay for Brother John, which is, what is the purpose of life? And I basically said, and I didn't want to get too, I said, it's what the, I said, what's the, what the West calls conversion and the East calls enlightenment. That's the ultimate purpose of life. I elaborated it much more in Business Seekers to Trappist Monks when I said, all of, all of life, whether we realize it or not, is a search, is a journey from selfishness to selflessness. Um, and the hero, and I broke the hero's journey down and I said, I was trying to explain why the monks are so successful and, you know, what, with their lives and their business and stuff. But I said, um, because the secret to being successful in business is to be selfless, not to be selfish. And I said, um, so you have the, I broke down, I, I abbreviated the hero's journey into the, first of all, there's the, there's the call, you know, where the burning bush calls to, um, you know, uh, Moses. And then there's the resistance to the call. And then there's the desert. And then there's the great trial. Then there's the death and rebirth, and then there's return to help others. I said, in all of these movies that we love to go to watch are all based on that. The movie starts with, uh, I make this movie up, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to make this movie one of these days. And there's, so imagine this house way out in the desert somewhere, you know, and, and a car is coming, you know, with a U.S. Air Force on the side of it is, is, is driving out there and the dust is flowing. I finally gets to the house and, um, and, you know, some spiffy, you know, Lieutenant Colonel or Major gets out all spiffed up, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, it's got to be um, Clint Eastwood or somebody like Clint Eastwood comes staggering out on their porch drunk. What the hell do you want? Says, we need you to come back to the Air Force because only you can save the world. That's the call. And then what's the first thing they've got these heroes always say in all these movies? Get the hell out of here. I wouldn't come back to the Air Force. You know, but he, that's the resistance to the call. Then he finally answers the call, like Neo gets called in the Matrix, you know, and then he has to go to the desert and he has to be trained by Morpheus and get the starch knocked out of him, you know, don't try, do, you know, um, wipe on, wipe off or whatever that the karate, you know. And then he comes out of the desert with all this power and he has to decide, you know, he's tempted by the dark side. So is he going to, that's what puts the essential tension in the story. Is he going to use this selflessly is he going to use this power selfishly so darth vader and michael corleone get suckered over to the dark side but you know so then the, then he has to go and then he goes through the death and rebirth which is done best i think in the matrix because in the matrix um neo uh literally gets killed by agent smith he's dying that you know dies but he's connected by a phone line from the matrix back to the mothership in the, you know, out of the matrix to his girlfriend, to the, to the woman who loves him, who happens to be named Trinity. And so that phone line symbolizes grace and compassion and, you know, and she pumps love and you know, down to him. She's Sophia. She's the, the, the archetype, you know, of Sophia, the Virgin Mary, whatever. And she pumps. And, 
And so then he comes back to life, and now he's not fighting just for himself on his own power. He's fighting with God's power behind him, with her love behind him. So now he defeats. And so the finally the stage is the um, return to help others. So then the, the hero has to come back and help somebody else. I said, but if you really want to boil that down even more, this entire journey is a, is a journey from selfishness to selflessness. So this, he starts, Clint Eastwood starts out saying, get away from me. I'm drinking. I don't I want to, you know. And gradually he gets transformed into a, a selfless a selfless person. And I said, all, um, all motivation can be described in terms of, mo of transformation, where all, all life is longing for transformation. Um, every acorn longs to be transformed into an oak. Every caterpillar is longing to be transformed into a butterfly. But, um, but, and so human beings, we're all longing for transformation too, whether we realize it or not. But there's three forms of transformation. When a thirsty man drinks, he transforms his condition. When a poor man hits the lottery, he transforms his circumstances. But when Mr. Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, an utterly new man, he has experienced a transformation of being. And this is what we're all truly longing for. And that's why we go to these movies. We walk, we go to the hundred, we, uh, the movies are all the same, you know, Groundhog Day, the devil's wears Prada, you go on and on and on. Person starts out selfish and they end up selfless. And what that shows me from my old business career, where you don't want, listen to what people say, you watch what they spend their money on. People spend billions and billions of every year to go and sit in a movie theater and watch other people be transformed from selfish people into selfless uh, uh, people. Uh. And that's telling me that what's what we all really want for ourselves. But to take it up a notch, which I kind of left out of Business Secrets because I was aiming at a kind of a general audience and it was ostensibly a business book. Although my publisher said, you're not kidding us. He said, this is, <laughs> you're using business as a Trojan horse so you can shove all your spiritual ideas inside of it. I said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. He said, he said yeah, that's what we like about the book. Um, the ultimate form of selflessness is the death of the ego, enlightenment. So, you know, there's, there's shorter form, you know, if you, if you can be a, a Mr. Mr. Scrooge doesn't reach enlightenment, he has a tremendous transformational experience. So everybody, everybody who's transformed doesn't go all the way to an enlightenment experience, but the, 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 that's what the real death and rebirth of the hero's journey is about. It's the complete and utter annihilation of the ego um, in a, in, a, in, a, in an experience. And that's what all these experiences of cosmic consciousness and Satori and Samadhi and the Unio Mystico, that's what they all share is the ego has to die. It takes complete surrender, you know? Um, and, uh, but as I said, in my, in business secrets of Trappist monks, I said, it's a tremendously hard thing to accomplish because you cannot consciously surrender any more than you can kill yourself by holding your breath. And I said, I said, what many, many seekers either don't acknowledge or don't understand is what is the difference between surrender, spiritual surrender, and just quitting, just giving up, just giving in, just selling out. What's the difference? So what's the difference between Letting go and find letting, you know, what do they call let go and uh, let go and let God. What's the difference between letting go and finding God 
and letting yourself go and gaining 50 pounds. Um, and what we're terrified of is we want to guarantee that if we let go, we're not going to gain the 50 pounds. We're going to find God. And that can't be done. You know, you, you have to, you know, I said in the, in the real issue then becomes, um, interestingly enough, the movement, the, the letting go and gaining 50 pounds and the letting go feels the same. Only the result is different. And this is where Richard Rose comes in with his whole idea of the vector and everything. You know, it's the long development of the vector that guarantees you when the day finally comes that you let go, that you're going to let go in the right way. But I also, you know, and I, I come back to that and not less than everything again and again, that, that, uh, that, you know, it's, it's perfectly legitimate. As I said, I ended up having one of the big things that ended up breaking me and Rose in 1977 was me having a fling with Danny Panchura's wife, um, which interestingly enough, her name is Linda. And uh, Danny died a few years ago and she got back in touch with me and she was, uh, she came down to visit and she was out in my, just by pure happenstance. She was, I have an, um, a barn and I have a, uh, an apartment that I built in the loft out there. She was staying out there where I was writing about her in the book. And I hadn't seen her in 30 years, 78, 40 years. Um, so anyway, you know, as I mentioned, I said, I surrendered all right, but I surrendered to lust. I dozed off, fell asleep and, and uh, surrendered to lust and woke up rolling around in the, with the, in the arms of, a, of the wife of a good friend. And this is what's very terrifying about the spiritual path. Because we want to control surrender, which is a contradiction in terms. I only want to surrender to this, not that. You know, and uh, in the final analysis, you can't you can't do that. But as Rose says in early in my book, um, you know, I can almost remember him saying, and which interestingly, all the stuff I talk about in my book is true. Um. He said, you got to attack the gates of heaven with everything you have. And I remember, and, I, and it's in my book, I said, you go after it, hammers and tongs. That was the first time in my life, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody else use that expression. You go at it, hammers and tongs with everything you have. But here's the secret, you will fail. Because those, sway, those, those gates don't swing in, they only swing out. You have to be invited. You have to have some help from the other side, he said. He said, but in, he said, but in your surrender, so you, you know, you have to, you'll be defeated. And in your surrender, he said, the, the gates magically swing open. He said, and mystics call it the, um, uh, uh, the magnificent defeat. You have to be defeated. The ego has to be defeated. I don't know if you ever heard of a book called uh, the ego and the dynamic ground by Michael Washburn. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't recommend that many books, but my, the ego and the dynamic ground was a, a terrific, is a terrific book. Um, but really after I got back from my own experience in, in Baltimore in 1998, it took me a whole year as I, I, to, to recover. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways I still haven't, but, uh, but Dave gold, who uh, you also know came in, one day he said, he said, I was cleaning out my closet and I found this and he threw a chapter of a book on my desk and it was called, uh, 
um, uh, regression in the service of transcendence. And so I started reading, oh my God, and everything that I went through in my dark night of the soul between the time I broke my, which I talk about in the book, broke my ankle in that skydiving accident, he illustrated in this in the thing. And it was really basically telling psychologists that this is not necessarily a disease of the mind, that this person could be having a spiritual experience. And even the dreams that I had, and then at the very end of the chapter, it says, so at, in our next chapter, Rebirth in Spirit, we'll deal with all the issues that come up after you've had the experience. I said, I don't have that chapter. <laughs> but I did find the book is called The Ego, The Dynamic Ground. And um, one, it's really, really a good book. But anyway, the thing that really grabbed me, he said, he said, despair is a marvelous thing. It's so painful and so unremitting. I love that he used the word unremitting. It's so painful and so unremitting. It is just about the only thing that can convince the ego of its nothingness and guilt. And um, and I certainly that's what that's that's what that's what I lived. And um, but I was always been you know blown away by that. Um, so anyway, you you definitely go into. I mean, your journey is 30 years approximately covered in the book. Right. And it struck me that much of that uh, one is completely analogous to the hero's journey that you're talking about. And two, uh, the depth of the despair that you went through is very evident in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have, you know, really talk much about this is such a hard question someone reading this who's interested in the quest for enlightenment i mean what do you hope that they could learn from your story that might help them shorten the span of despair perhaps <laughs> well there's a couple of things that i that i that i could um say along those lines um, um, one is you have to understand that the task of a teacher is to, you know, I was down at the monastery and we were going to bring the, and I was talking about these same issues with one of the monks down there. I don't remember what I was saying, but I remember what he said. He said, of course, he said, the only reason we come to the monastery is so we can hit the wall faster. So first of all, you have to understand that hitting the wall is the is the is the point. And um, so, in the early parts of my book, I'm arguing with Rose a lot. I keep coming back. I don't actually illustrate the arguments we had. We had some pretty knockdown, dragout arguments, and um, a lot of it was because I wanted um, I didn't want it to be so hard. I wanted it to be. I didn't want to have to go full tilt. I didn't want to have to go all in. I didn't. Have, I wanted to be able to have have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to have my girlfriend. I wanted to have it. You know. And I wanted. To, and I think I. And when I didn't think I said it, I said that when I'm on that first trip around Mr. Rose's farm, I was on the one hand thrilled by this guy. He was just really lighting my fire. On the other hand, it was dawning on me that, as I said, my life back in Pittsburgh was in serious jeopardy. This guy wasn't talking about just smoothing out the rough edges of my life with a little spirituality, put a little salt and pepper spirituality on the steak, you know, to make it a little spicier for you. 
you know, he was talking about pulling my life up by the roots. He was talking about a whole new direction. So first of all, I think is don't spend, try to do the best you can to be honest and don't spend an awful lot of time thinking that all you got to do is sit around going, oh, oh, or just be mindful or, you know, um, don't try to cut corners. And in my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, um, when I stopped, when I was talking about the hero's journey a lot, I said, nobody wants to go to the desert. I said, and so there is a tons of spiritual systems and teachers that will try to convince you. And it's so seductive. You don't have to go to the desert. You can skip right to the, to the end of the book. You know, you can go right to the death and rebirth or whatever the heck you have to go to the desert. So, um, so be prepared for that. Number two, you know, get a group and a community and a teacher, you know, you need these things in, in your life. I mean, I, to me, this, the work that I did with the SKS with you and her absolutely was essential. You know, especially the story that I tell when, when everything really fell apart and, and I was teaching that house course at Duke and, uh, and I was basically having a nervous breakdown and I was, um, and, and the kids were all mad at me and everything. And I didn't want to do the class. And I went to pick up the phone to tell Meredith, who was my TA to cancel the class. And suddenly I stopped and I said, wait a second. What if I don't feel any better next week? What am I going to do? Cancel again? And then what? Cancel the course? And then what? Cancel my life? Just what? Not take up bowling? <laughs> no, I'm committed. I'm absolutely committed. I have no way out. I have to go forward. I have to go to this class tonight. Um, and I said, this is the vector that you develop. So having a community, having that class that I needed to go to, having the, the people that I was working with were absolutely critical. Third, you need a teacher and the teacher should be, um, his job is to disillusion you. So think of that word, the word disillusion that shouldn't have a negative connotation. It means to rid you of illusions, of falsities, of untruths. But in the English language, <clears throat> it has a universal negative connotation. And I've done some, and, and, and why you may ask? Well, I've done some thinking about that, Matt, Sean. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason why we hate the word disillusionment so much is because deep down inside, we are terrified that if we lost all of our illusions, there'd be nothing. There'd be nothing left. Um, and um, so, so we don't want to be disillusioned. But Richard Rose was the teacher we're talking about here was very controversial because he was a, the great disillusioner. He was always popping, sticking a pin in the balloon of balloons of your the games, you know, that you're playing. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and that was one of the greatest pieces of advice, um, that the psychologist, David Kravitz is, I don't use his last name in the book and I call him David. Um, you know, he was a strange man, but he, but I said to him one time, I said, why does it have to be so hard, David? And he was filling out my credit card form and he didn't even look up at me and he said, because we insist on playing our games until the pain becomes so great, we can't take it anymore. 
So um, the best way to make it as short as you can is to stop pay, playing the games. But ga you have games within games within games. You meet people, you, or you, you wake up one day, wait, so I'm playing the game that I'm not playing the game. <laughs> you know, it, you need a teacher who's constantly, and it's very, very frustrating to work with a really good teacher. Um, if your path is not frustrating the hell out of you, I've actually come to the conclusion that the main purpose of meditation is to frustrate you. And, and because that's how you build up the tension, you build up the energy because, um, you know, I mentioned that in the book that Rose said there was psychic energy. The first thing in order to have a, a spiritual intuition, the first thing you have to do is create the energy through a healthy lifestyle. Um, then you have to um, um, conserve the energy. You know, you have to make sure that you don't um, dissipate it by just blowing off steam um, through distractions or licentious living, as I say. Um, then you have to, um, uh, uh, um, you know, you have to uh, endure. I forget the word I use, but you have to endure the energy because now the energy struggles for release. The energy wants to go to the lowest common denominator. And you're trying to push it up in a Kundalini kind of way. So the energy is is struggling constantly, you know, kind of like water in a pipe that doesn't want to go to the third floor. It wants to go to the center of the earth. So it's fighting against the pipe all the time. And I said the seeker experiences that struggle as frustration. You want to just go out and tie one on. <laughs> you just want to go out and get yourself 12 girls. You know, you, you just want to, you know, you want to blow off steam. Is what I said. And then finally, you have to focus that. And when you put all four of those things together, when it's created, conserved, controlled, controlled, that's the third, created, conserved, controlled, and focused, then you have the, the, uh, the, the place that Rose called attention, being at tension, which is exactly the opposite of so much of what passes for spirituality, which is the relax, go with the flow, you know, the Zen of the moment, you know, no, it's holding your attention and being focused and holding that, that that tension so if you want to help yourself then you have to be coachable you have to be coachable you know to me and all even all my work on one of the things i'm proudest of in my life um in a lot of ways you know i think i knocked it out in 30 years mm. <laughs> you know <laughs> because now it's been 25 years and i haven't had a moment's depression or anything you know um but uh but you know, you're, you've got to be, I've been, I was coachable. I mean, Rose asked me to do a ton of lots of things that I didn't see the sense. And I, I wrote an article for Forbes called, are you coachable? The five steps of coachability. And I had a kind of a business spin to it, but I started with my golf pro and I said, my golf pro, I was had a horrible, my game was in horrible shape. It was like 1990 or something. So I go to this golf pro, the golf pro, I'm going to give you an easy, repeatable, low energy, you know, effortless golfing. And then the next thing you do, you worked me to death. I lost 20 pounds taking golf lessons. And I said, the interesting thing about it is everything he asked me to do originally felt wrong. I mean, if you've ever taken up the game of golf, I think some of your listeners probably have, the first thing they teach you is how to hold the club, the grip. And the first time you hold, try to hold the golf club correctly, I guarantee you, you're going to think there's no way I could ever even hold this club, let alone swing it with this grip. It feels so completely wrong. I want to hold it like a baseball bat. So 
everything about a golf swing is counterintuitive. It you have to trust the the, the process, as they like to say. I hate that expression. But you got to trust the process. You got to trust the teacher. You know, trust what he's doing, and then one day you have an aha experience. Oh, now I know what he was talking about, and something becomes second nature. And uh, now holding the golf club, I can't imagine holding a golf club any other way than the, than the, the correct way. Um, and so, so you have to be aware of the fact when you start working with a teacher, when you, a lot of this stuff's going to feel like the way my golf, it's going to feel wrong. It's going to feel like, you know, uh, you know, and so you have to, and that's what my, the first nice thing my pro said to me when I first worked with him, you know, he said, um, it was all professional. I, we actually eventually became friends and played golf together and stuff. But he and he was right off the PGA tour, so this guy was good. And he said, "Augie, I enjoy working with you." He said, "Everything you I ask you to do, you give me 150 percent." He says, "You'd be amazed at how many guys pay me 100 dollars for 30 minutes, and all they do is argue with me for 30 minutes." Right. And I saw that again and again and again, Sean, with Mr. Rose. People would come and all they did was argue and argue and argue and argue and argue, you know, um, and uh, don't argue with the teacher. And I remember somebody, a lot of questions I used to get when I was teaching with the SKS and working with the students is, <clears throat> how do I know that I got the right teacher? And I'd say, how does he know he's got the right student? Why don't you concentrate a lot more on being the right student and worry less about whether he's the right teacher? I said, in all the years that I've been doing this and all the teachers and I said, the biggest problem has never been that, that this teacher is, yeah, there's got to be a couple crazy teachers out there that are just completely off the wall. But, but to me, the vast majority of the problem is lousy students, not lousy teachers. <laughs> Americans are just fundamentally completely uncoachable. They immediately start arguing, uh, you know, right away. Rose had a great way of handling, I thought, you know, where he had two great ways to handle it. The first way was, is that what your intuition, you know, because what would happen is people don't ask questions. They say, they say, they put her hand up like they're going to ask a question and he called it pointed questions. And then it's, it would be, isn't it true, Mr. Rose? That's the question part that you're full of crap and you're wrong about everything you're saying. <laughs> and then it would start the, start the argument, you know, and Rose would say, is that, well, is that your intuition? You know, is that what your intuition is telling you is true? And they say, yeah, okay, good. Next question. But then there was the other, that's the other type there. Like we were on the like the fortieth floor of the, um, of the uh, Cathedral of Learning, at the University of Pittsburgh, because the, there's a skyscraper, University. I got my Pitt hat on. That's where I went to college, and it, they're famous because the main building at Pitt is a skyscraper, and we're on a classroom like up on the thirtieth floor or something, fortieth floor. I don't even know where I was, and this Hare Krishna guy comes in. And uh, and he ar starts arguing with Rose, and so Rose gives him, "Is that your intuition?" And yeah, the guy just keeps arguing, and so Mister Rose says to him, uh, "Um, well, you know, if you're not if you're going to just keep arguing like that and won't be quiet and let somebody else talk, I'm going to have to ask you to leave." And the guy keeps up. He says, "I'm a student here, right? You know, this is a public forum, and I don't have to leave." Blah 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 blah. And Mister Rose looks over at him. He says, "Excuse me," he says, "Um, we're no longer discussing whether you're going to leave." We're now discussing whether it's going to be that door over there or that window over here. Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> and the Hare Krishna guy got up and left.
I did the, I used the exact, I used the, I used that same line at, at Boston university when I was uh, chairing, uh, you know, and I had two kids that were, you know, I was about ready to go into action with these two kids at Boston university. And we were on like the seventh or eighth floor of the student union. And I said, no, we're now discussing whether you're going out that door, or you're going out that window. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. And I saw it in business. I hire for, I mean, I was on the cover of selling magazine. I know a little bit about sales and I hire these 20 year old kids to come in and be salesmen. And I'd say, here's the, here's the pitch. And here's exactly, how. no, that's not the way I do it. How many sales jobs yet? This is my first one. How many days you've been on the job too? <laughs> anyway, what's your next, what's your next, does that, I hope that helps a little bit, but the last thing, last thing I'd say about that is that what do I really have to offer people after everything? What happened when I came back from Baltimore after I had my experience and I was so discombobulated and having these ecstasy experiences and stuff. So I went back to this psychologist, David, who I'd worked with earlier. And the first thing he says, and I mentioned it in my book, he said is uh, when I told him everything that happened in Baltimore and you got to buy my book because it's a hell of a story what happened in Baltimore. He, uh, he says, well, what do you want out of little old me? After all that, what do you want out of little old me? And I said, David, I just need somebody to talk to you to kind of process all this stuff. And kind of. So I started working with him again. And, um, and most of what I did is I'd come to his office and cry from gratitude every week. And one day I was crying from gratitude. And I said, I said, David, I said, there's nothing I could have possibly done which would have earned me, earned what God gave me. I said, um, it's all grace. It has to be just all grace. And he got really contemplative for a minute. And then he said, yes, Augie, it is all grace. But you asked for it. You spent your entire life asking for it. He said, what happened to you is not what typically happens to an ordinary person on their way to the grocery store for a quart of milk. I'll never forget that. It was a quart of milk that we were going to the grocery store for. Ask for it. You got to ask for it. When I asked Rose what he thought about prayer, he was cooking an egg. He was frying an egg on his kitchen, you know, and he didn't even turn around. I said, What do you think about prayer, Mr. Rose? Make your entire life a prayer and it will be answered instantly. It just takes 30 years to turn your entire life into a prayer. That's, the, that's what takes the time. One thing that, that surprised me about your book is the amount of what I would call therapeutic exercises that you did, explorations that you did, and uh, which I, I had never heard about any of that before. And I'm, and I guess I'm curious in terms of many times I look at the spiritual path as here's the spiritual realm and here's the psychological realm, the therapeutic realm. I mean, maybe occasionally there's something in the therapeutic realm that I might want to explore a little bit, but really the spiritual path is about enlightenment and going for enlightenment pure and simple but i think that i think that your story and many stories and perhaps all stories really have a if not a if not an overt therapeutic need um it's it's there 
Except, except perhaps in the case of Rose, for example. I never heard Richard Rose talking about anything in regards to psychology except for criticism. And I guess I wonder if these the therapeutic explorations that you did were post your time with Rose. And is that something that you stumbled into, that you had a realization that, you know, there's a side of this path I haven't really explored? No, no, I, you know, and I, and I don't actually see, I mean, there is some of the Ken Wilbur, I hear a little bit of Ken Wilbur in what you're talking about. Um, and I think some of that's interesting stuff to make the, his, his spectrum of consciousness and things like that. Um, but starting, you know, Mr. Rose's biggest conf, um, criticism of psychology is that it had been turned from a study of the psyche, which is what psychology means, the study of the psyche, to the study of behavior. And he be believed that the, that, so when you, the, 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 the ultimate form of therapy is who am I? You know, that, that, that's all, that, you know, the self-knowledge is the ultimate. I was only interested in, in um, you know, in self-knowledge. And as I learned, and I had to get into these therapies because, you know, I, don't even, I never even thought, matter of fact, when I went to Bill Richards and the, the very first, and if you remember in my book, what was the very first question? He said, what do you, what would you want out of our time together? And I said, well, I know what I don't want. I don't want to be adjusted. I don't want to be there. I don't want therapy. And he said, well, well, what do you want? I said, I want to be real. I want to be genuine. I want to be who I really am. Um, whoever, what, however that happens to be, but what you find out is you're, you know, what did, what did I say? I said, Rose said the four biggest obstacles was the insatiable human, uh, appetite for rationalization, self-deception, compartmentalization, uh, and procrastination. And, uh, you know, I forget what the fourth one was. I threw that it's in there. And I said, when it came to Linda, I said, I was pulling on, I was yanking on all four of these levers as fast as I could. You know, you know, so the therapy is, is, is self-deception. You know, most of, of, of a real good therapy therapist helps you to unravel all the self-deceptions, all the games you're playing, you know? And these games that you're playing are, are the buffers that you've created erroneously out of fear. The biggest thing is fear. Everything goes back to fear. Um, you know, the great book, The Denial of Death, which is a book that I, one other book that I recommend wholeheartedly it's almost like you know you can't get anything until you read denial of death you know everything goes back to fear of death the fear um and so we 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 come up with all these convoluted you know you know it's like you uh, you know i didn't have a you know a, a a therapist because at the time i probably didn't even realize that i said at one point i'm i had a girlfriend when i was in college sarah and i said i was afraid to tell sarah about mr rose about my real relationship with Rose, because I was afraid that would scare her off. I was afraid to tell Rose about Sarah, because I was afraid he'd scare me off. I was afraid to tell Sarah how I really felt about her, because I was afraid she'd reject me. Or I was even more afraid that she might accept me. And I said, of course, I wasn't afraid to share any of this Byzantine stuff with, with Rose, because if I asked for his advice, I just might have to take it. Now, you know, if, if if you're not aware of all this stuff that's going on inside you, and you know, and this is what a you know a, a, a guy like Bill Richards, who is the therapist that I was talking about, um, 
And what I loved about Bill, matter of fact, I just talked to him just recently because I wanted to know the name of that church. And it's St. Basil's, which I described St. Basil's in the, in the church that where I went with him in 1998. And so I was, we had a Zoom call together just recently. And I said, what's the name of that church? And he was able to give me the name, the name of uh, the, the church. Um, no, um, and uh, so his whole thing, and I remember, remember I mentioned that book, which is another book I really, really love, which is, uh, for a lot of reasons, was the book that I took with me to Baltimore, which was um, um, Moby Dick and American Nekia. And I mentioned that Carl Jung came up with the the word Nekia is an ancient Greek word that means that the great the great um, poets like Homer and um, used for, to talk about the journey into the underworld, the hero's journey into the underworld. Well, that's the unconscious mind. You know, so if the therapist is taking you into your unconscious mind and dealing with all these unconscious uh, issues, um, then it's not really just therapy. It's 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 spiritual work. Um, you know, and if on the other hand, if you've got some kind of a, if you're drinking too much, or you're or you're uh, you know you're you're, you're you you've got some other kind of psychological thing that is that is uh, you know some kind of habit or something like that that is keeping you so full of guilt that you can't even sit down and meditate or whatever well then then you maybe need a little therapy you know, f- you know for that reason in the same way that rose says that you know the first level of of spiritual path is getting your house in order and part of getting your house in order is he called it getting your head on straight and so he was very much into therapy in that set he was always talking about the, the importance of getting your head on st- straight you know and um and he was very interested in um dianetics he was very he you know he was very critical of l ron hubbard because l ron hubbard took what he thought was a very good um fundamental technique which was dianetics and uh and then tried blew it up into a religion and you know start taking people's money and all that kind of stuff but he thought that dianetics was a very very uh, interesting approach for just helping people get uh get their head on straight and he used to say all the time that um that uh, the vast majority of work that he was doing um with people in our group was not spiritual work it was it was therapy he was actually a you know a therapist helping people just um get over a lot of their traumas and because those kinds of things <clears throat> the scar tissue that you've built up through traumas and stuff uh, hamstring you from being able to do anything so i don't make that you know i i believe in the whole the idea of yeah i'm extraordinarily critical of, of most psychologists psychology and psychologists and I'm especially critical of the atheistic psychology that doesn't include anything um, but uh, um, but the um, but the only two there I think there's only two therapists and one is Bill Richards, which I'm extraordinarily impressed with and um, and he was you know like you said he 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 was the last person to be able to use psychedelic drugs. He was te- he's back doing that, by the way. He's back. He's in his eighties and stuff, but he's in working at Johns Hopkins, and they've opened back up again. And they've and he's one of the guys that's working with um with uh, psychedelics, you know, again as a therapeutic tool. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he was deeply, deeply, profoundly mystical guy. You know, as I said in my book, the very first time I went to his office, he had all these books. I said and on one side was all the 
stuff you might expect, the textbooks. I, mean, I remember I didn't mention it in the book, but what blew my mind is he had all Gurdjieff and Uspensky stuff there. I mean, here I am, you know, this, I come in, you know, Gurdjieff and Uspensky? I mean, you know, you, you, know, you don't hear see that many uh, psychologists that have, uh, <clears throat> but I went to see David Kravitz. I started going and working with David here in Raleigh because I was absolutely desperate. That's why I went rolfing. I took up rolfing. I took up psychic. I went to the, you know, I went to the Monroe Institute. I went to the, hey, I would have, you know, I would have done any damn thing at that point in time. Um, I was, you know, when you get to the, you get the point of desperation, you'll try just about anything. Yeah. Uh, turning to the Trappist, mm -hmm. you know, and again, I'll, I'll put out a stereotype that the, Catholic religion is, uh, ossified, fossilized, whatever truth there is long dead, um, monasteries, perhaps even more so because there are these isolated communities that are in touch with the outside world filled with filled with misfits who can't survive in real life. Uh, obviously that's, that wasn't your experience at all. And no. I'd be curious in regards to what you think is uh, perhaps some of the mystical life that that is that is alive in these monastic situations that maybe people don't appreciate. Well, you know, I, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I agree. You know, you, if you're gonna, um, but I mean, is any, you know, almost any organized. I mean, are the Buddhists any different or the Hindus any different or the, you know, um, you if you get in any, you know, there's a billion Catholics on the face. There's actually a billion Catholics. I mean, you're, you're going to have to like anything. I used to tell, I remember one time at the university of North Carolina, this kid said to me, um, and he meant it sincerely. And I was very flattered. I, I told him I was flattered. He said he got more out of the SKS meetings than he got from all his classes put together at Carolina. And I said, um, I said, that's very, very nice of you to say. I said, but also, I said, let me be a little confrontational here. I said, you got to get off your butt. I said, you got to, you you know, if your classes are boring, you know, you got to find the, 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 I said, you could, you could take classes. There's, there's, you know, they'll let you take classes at Duke. They'll let you take classes in North Carolina State. You know, you can do independent studies. You can do, you know, so you got to, you got to work. I did that, by the way, when I was at, at Pitt. Um, that's how I became the protege of the Russian history department and stuff. You know, I, I, I worked at it. I, I used to take, we were supposed to take five courses a semester. I'd sign up for 15 and I'd go to 15 classes the first week or so. And I would drop down to the five that I thought were worth taking. Um, so, um, so the Catholic church, you know, you have to find the places you have to look for it. And, and Mepkin Abbey is the place that, you know, and as I said in my book, what impressed me, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to go, I almost went to the monastery because of Thomas Merton. I had read, uh, I still think that um, his book, Mystics and Zen Masters, is one of the best books on mysticism you can possibly read. And his, and he, and he, I came away believing that he had a better understanding of um, of uh, Zen than than any than anybody else I've ever read. And he really talks about the difference between the Northern school and the Southern school in China. And I mean, I, 
I thought this guy, you know, the other best uh, thing I ever thought, read was John Blofeld's introduction to the Wang Po on the transmission of mind. I think Blofeld's introduction, which is only about 10 pages long about Zen is, is, is really, really, really good. Um, but, um, you, you know, so, you know, I went there. So, uh, so I almost went in 1978 when I broke up with Rose, <clears throat> as I mentioned in the book, I just on a whim called up and I said, Hey, I'd like to come down. And, and he, and the guy and the, and the, and the guest master said, uh, because, um, why do you want to come? And I said, I, want, I just blurted out. I want to learn how to pray. And he said that great answer. He said, that's why we're all here. And, um, and I said in the book, I said, I said, what do I have to bring? I said, uh, a toothbrush, but I, I cut out what I cut out was the other little part of the conversation. I said, he said there was a minimum of two weeks to stay as a guest house. I said, what happens if I want to stay longer than two weeks? He says, then you'll have to talk to the abbot. He said, but you sound like a pretty good salesman. I don't think you have too much trouble with the abbot. So I was all set to go when, um, when he called back and said the guest house was booked. He had forgotten that the best house was going to be booked. And, um, so, uh, the very same day I got readmitted to Pitt. So I went back to Pitt and graduated. So when Josh Skidlarik called me up in 1996, now again, um, I'm, I was in bad shape. I'd had this skydiving accident and I had all these panic attacks and, and, um, and the bottom fell out of my life and I'm really, really depressed and, and I'm scared, really, really, really scared. Um, and, uh, and he calls me up and he says, he's spending the summer at this, uh, monastery uh, as a monastic guest. And I said, I want to come. And I went. And of course, what, you know, it wasn't what I found necessarily in the monks that first weekend. I got blown away by something that happened to me in Vespers when Elijah blew my mind up. And then I walk out into the thing and I get run into this other monk that's, that, 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 you know, read the book, you know? <laughs> I mean, I had two spiritual experiences happened to me the first weekend. It wasn't like I went down there like a, like a, like, like a, uh, a, a spiritual tourist and said, Oh, so tell me brother Joe, uh, what's the three best reasons to, you know, to be a Trappist monk? No. I mean, I got my mind blown that first weekend that I was there, but as I got to know those monks more and more and more, um, they, to me were the shock troops. They were the spiritual uh, Marine Corps. They were the ones that were, 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 you know, in my very first book, Father Christian plays a big part in this book. And I really, you know, you just have to end up, I wanted to repeat one story uh, from, from my first book. And Father Christian was anything but a guy who was escaping in, in comp, you know, he had three PhDs, a PhD in philosophy, a PhD in canon law, and a PhD in um, um, theology. He was a successful lawyer before he even became a priest. He used to teach. Um, that's why he had the canon law PhD. He was. Uh, uh, he used to teach at the Franciscan. Uh, he was a teacher, a professor at Franciscan Seminary. Um, and one day, um, I have a meeting to see him. He comes in and he's got this great big thick book with him. Oh, he had two books with him. And the first book, and I said, "What the heck?" He said, "It was a book on uh, subatomic physics." It's a textbook, this big Hummer textbook on, on particle physics. And he's, he's the guy's 88 years old. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? He says, well, he says, my, you know, my, my, my knowledge of physics has become uh, anachronistic is the way you put it, you know? So I figured it's time to bone up. 
the guy's boning up on physics by reading a 300 page uh, particle physics uh, textbook. Um, and then the other book was a book on religion. He said he was really disappointed in most. He said most uh, books on religion, he said, are just books on. He said they're merely edifying. Be nice to each other. And he said, he said, every time I put down one of these spiritual books, he says, I, I ask myself, you know, where's the transcendent? Where's the. Uh, 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 no, he said, where, where's these fear and trembling? Where's the agape? Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the supernatural? You know, he says, where is the transcendence? You know, and I remember, and I said to him, I think I know what you mean, Father. I said, the, the person who's actually had an experience of God versus somebody, he said, the difference is infinite. I almost named my book, The Infinite Difference, because he said, the difference, well, difference is infinite. But I asked him one time, I said, why he became a, a, a Trappist monk? And it was very, very confrontational to me when I asked him that question, by the way, well, what is the, you know, the difference is infinite? Because I had not had my experience. And, and it was obvious he'd had some kind of experience by the way he talked. And so it really hit my heart that, you know, um, that was why I was at the monastery, because I was spiritually desolate. But I asked him one time, I said, why did you become a, a monk? Because he loved to talk, and here he is a silent monk. And he said, uh, "He said I made a mistake." And he started laughing and banging on the thing, you know, on his his hands on the arms of his chair. And he said, um, "He said I I was in Canada one time when I was teaching seminary for the Franciscans." He said, "And I decided to take a tour of a Trappist monastery up there, just on a lark as a tourist, you know, check it out." He said, "And while I was taking the tour, I made the mistake of asking myself a question." He said, for the next 11 years, he said, I wrestled with that question until I finally realized that question had me pinned. And the next thing I know, I find myself here. And I said, Father, what was the question? He said, what would it feel like to give myself totally to God? And man, I, to this day, when he said that, man, I get chills. The, the chills just go up my spine. What would it be like to give myself totally to God? You know, and uh, and that was what he was doing there. And uh, and so a lot of the, a lot of the I, I I loved being around those guys. You know, there it's so hard. You probably understand exactly what I'm talking. So are the people that are listening to this podcast, it's so hard to get a good conversation. You know, everybody wants to, you know, what, what did Mr. Rose used to call, you know, yeah, you know, how's the wife? How's the kids? What about those Yankees? You know, um, everything is, you know, I go to Europe and people say, what's with you Americans and chit chat? That's what Europeans say. As a matter of fact, they're, they at least get into a little more, <laughs> but what I love about going to the monastery is you, you know, you'll bump into somebody that's also there visiting. And by the time you've walked from, from your guest quarters to the, you know, he, he's poured his heart out and told you, all, you know, you know, I, I told a story of my first book where uh, um, there was a new monk down there. Um, his name was Jim and he became, I think, I forget what he became, I forget what his, when he became a brother, I can't, what name he took. Anyway, his name was still Jim because he was just a postulant and he had been an executive at Columbia University. And so we were both at the egg house to work and I got there first and he was like the second one to arrive and we knew who each other were, but we had never really been formally introduced. So I shook hands and introduced and I said, um, I said, how's it going so far? And he said, 
Augie, he said, it's hard. And it's so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And I said, for example, and he said, he took his hand as if it was a mirror and he put his palm of his hand in front of his face. He said, I'm right here all the time. There's no place to hide here. He said, um, he said, I thought I was leaving all my demons in New York. He said, but I think I just brought them all down here with me. You know, so he, you know, uh, you know, he, um, he's another, I was taking a walk with another postulate. He said, at least you have some damn idea of what it's like down here. He said, everybody else just sees peace and tranquility. It's so freaking intense. And he didn't say freaking. He said, every time I think that I'm making a little bit of progress, he said, I catch myself elbowing some 90-year-old monk out of the way so I can get that last dish of ice cream. <laughs> he said, he said, he said, he said, he said, he said just, just spending a couple of days with these guys, he says, makes you realize just how ridiculously selfish you really are. So, um, so. I found the st stories like that behind almost all the guys that I met down there. It's really difficult for me to go down now because most of them are dead. Almost everybody that I wrote stories about, you know, I just talked to brother John last week. He's still alive, but, um, oh, you know, father Christian, I was with father, father Christian when he died, he was a hundred years old. And, um, and the doctor turned to me and he said, he said, you know, it's interesting. He was in a coma. Christian was in a coma. And he said, you know, it's interesting. He said, there's not one thing wrong with that man. He's a hundred years old, heart strong, pulse is great. No kind of cancer, no, you know, no pneumonia, nothing. He said, there's nothing wrong with him. He said, but we see it all the time. He said, we call it, it's a failure to thrive. He's just ready to go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so and he, you know, he, he, I was the only one in the room with him when he died, but I really loved that man. So, um, you know, so, yeah, I, I would say that, you know, and who knows, you could go right down the street and go to another monastery and find out that they got concubines coming in on Friday nights. And they're all, you know, you know, it's it's the same as anything else. I mean, um, you got to you got to find your your, your pockets um, and, and you have to put the work in and it's and it's it's everywhere. But it's. Um, but, and it's nowhere, but you have to, you know, find, I mean, and I mean, I tell all my interesting stories, <clears throat> but there's a, I remember that, um, he's still around. I think he's still alive. He wrote the book, Raymond Moody. He wrote the yeah, life yeah. at life after life. So I heard that he was speaking when I was living in North in with Mobley and I was living up in Maryland. And I heard that he was giving a speech at a uh, Blue Ridge community college. And I was determined to see this speech. I, I drove like five hours to blue, all the way down in Virginia someplace to the Blue Ridge Community College. He comes out dressed as a dressed with a like a like a with a corn cob pipe and a you know like um like Mr. Green Jeans from the Captain Kangaroo show. Excuse me. And he puts on a comedy thing. Had nothing to do with life after death or anything. So afterwards, I walked up to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm here because I want to hear about, about life after death. And he said, oh, I'm not into that anymore. And wow. so, then I turned, so then I turned around and drove five hours back. You got to be willing to do that. You got to be willing to drill some damn dry holes. You know, and in the long run, you find out maybe they weren't so dry afterwards because that was, that's your formation.
And one of the best metaphors that I like that I, and it took me a long time to come up with some of this stuff to really think about it, to be able to illustrate stuff to other people. Because the con, Rose's concept of the vector was really, really hard for me to understand when I was young. Um, and so I describe it in the book. I said, you have to become like a super well-trained soldier whose legs keep moving long after his heart and his head have given up. You have to develop, that's your character, that's the, what you develop in the desert. You develop your character so that you have the, and you develop this, all these second nature things. Because in, in war, 90% of casualties happen when people are running away, when men run away. Well, it's, it's natural to want to run away. It's unnatural or second nature to say run towards the machine gun. But that's what, you, that's what they teach you to do. You have to become second nature. So you have to, because as Rose said, and he used to say this over and over again, he says you have to build up such a head of steam that when you finally realize that the bridge up ahead is out, it's too late to throw on the brakes. And and I mentioned that when I went to see Bill Richards, when I was really, really, you know, and as I said in the book, I got to the point where I told Dave Gold on the phone, or Eric Clark, and you know Eric Clark very well. And I told Eric Clark on the phone that I was never coming back from Baltimore because I was going to die or be institutionalized. That's how bad things got. But I, But Bill Richards asked me when I first got up there, the first question he asked me, he says, are you on medication or are you considering suicide? And I said in the book, I said, I was flabbergasted by that question. Not because he asked it. It was a natural question. As bad a shape I was in, it was an absolute miracle that I wasn't either suicidal or on meds or both. So why was it? Because it never even crossed my mind during this two years of absolute hell that you predicted you have to wonder about that story about you where he comes up to me in the in the out of nowhere in the gym and tells you you're in for two years of so much hell you're gonna be wishing you was never born. Well, anyway, I went through through two years of of hell wishing I was never born. And I said the only answer I have for why it never occurred to me to go to a shrink and get a prescription for meds as desperately in despair as I was, is it was my vector. But even though the, 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 you know, and I just kept going forward, I just mechanically kept moving forward, even though I had no hope. And there was the, the bridge up ahead was out because I had no other choice. I mean, Bob Sergal said something in, a, in, the, in the blurb that he ended up writing for Not Less Than Everything, which I, uh, I mean, I could kiss him, not because he said it about my book necessarily, because he said it at all. He said the absolute essence to a spiritual path is commitment. Commitment. You know, and this, I think, a lot, even a lot of people who still consider themselves followers or rose who um, seem to be more interested, and they, Bob and I talk about this, seem to be more interested in his psychology of the observer or his meditation papers or stuff. When the most, in my opinion, the most, and I, you know, and I certainly was was closely there you know when the tax society was started there was only four people in the room besides rose me ray sosco bob martin and andy martin and mr rose that's how the tax society got started and um and rose's whole 90 percent of what he taught was lifestyle living the life living the life you know father francis that's another point that i was making it out at the monastery 
he said Christianity, he said, uh, is is fundamentally countercultural. And I believe that spirituality, forget Christianity necessarily, spirituality is fundamentally countercultural. If you don't feel like you're swimming upstream, if you don't feel alienated, if you don't feel like you're you know, a stranger in a strange land, if you don't feel like you're a modern, like I said in my book, I felt like a late modern Ishmael wandering around in ever-decreasing consent, rosy and concentric circles, like an asinine donkey <clears throat> pursuing a spiritual carrot that I could never taste. If you don't feel all these things, then you're probably not on a spiritual path. I've actually come to the conclusion that what really breaks the ego is not a meditation technique or fasting or being celibate or anything. It's not techniques, period. It's it's the it's the friction. When you're trying to climb up a waterfall and that water is just hitting your ego and just wears it away and wears it away, it's that it's the it's the pressure the pressure that the ego gets under when it's when it's when you're when nobody understands you when you nobody um you have nobody to turn to you have nobody to talk to the you know the, the things that you find funny other people don't find funny the things that you think are interesting it's like my dad even said to me one time you know the only one of the only times my dad ever opened up because he was what mr rose would call it ultra pragmatic describe he was ultra pragmatic my dad was ultra pragmatic but one time he says you know augie he said people need the concrete they need he said the stuff that you're into is just too abstract for me for most people and i said I, you know i understand what you're saying dad but i said i don't i don't agree i said it's what they consider concrete that i consider abstract and it's what they consider abstract that I find concrete. And, you know, it's like being on this farm. Every time I go out, what happened to that tree? The, you know, that tree is 10 times bigger than it used to be. Nothing seems to, nothing seems concrete. It's always changing all the time. It's always going, you know, no, my, my spiritual stuff is the only thing that seems to be fun, the fundamental. But, but I understand that I'm a weirdo to think that way. But you have to be willing, and this is what scares people. This is what scared people about Rose. You know, what, what Rose's most controversial philosophy is very, very simple. You know, you can say it in a couple of words, you know, the results are proportional to energy applied. All men seek the truth. The difference among them is whether they realize it, how much energy they apply to it, to the quest and how efficiently they apply that energy. People go into the vast majority of people go into spirituality to escape the harsh realities of life. And the harshest reality of life is that results are proportional to energy applied. You know, uh, that if you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to be a great athlete you want to be a great artist you want to be a scholar you you got to work your ass off at it and you got to sacrifice and you got to give up all kinds of stuff and it's going to cost you and that's what people don't want to do so they want to go gravitate into spirituality where we're all equal and god loves us all and you know and i'll 
And as Mr. Rose said, it's communities become mutually modulated conspiracies of mediocrity, droning on about, you know, acceptance, you know, no. Um, so in, as, in, in the other, in the corollary that Rose would say, as above, so below. The same fundamental um, um, things that work in heaven work on earth. And um, in, in that section where I was talking about intuition, he, he always came back to this. He says, you know, he said, there's not much difference than, he said, you want to be a spiritual, not much business starting a business. He says, you make a commitment, you put your back up against the wall, you surround yourself with like-minded people, and you make up your mind you're not going to stop at anything except evil to get there. It's the way you start a business. And then later on, when he's talking about intuition to me before the the, the Ziggy in the, in the uh, I love that story, by the way. I mean, come on. what? I mean, when those guy, kids just showed up and tried to freak on, on Rose, I mean, but anyway, right before that, he's talking about intuition. And he says, it ain't that much different. He said, if you really focus on something, you concentrate on something long enough, he says, your nose gets really good at sniffing it out. He said, it ain't that, you know, it ain't that much different than picking, um, picking horses, picking stocks or picking up girls. It's the same formula. People don't want to hear that. That's, that's, that's because, you know, because that's, that's where, that's where competition comes in and some people achieve it and some people don't. And, and it's up to me and there's, you know, there's, I have personal responsibility. They want to get into something where it's all grace and just relax and go with the flow and, you know, don't have to worry about it. And, you know, and so that was the most controversial and that was the most controversial thing with me. Cause I wanted to be, a, I wanted to continue with my Russian history. I wanted to continue messing around with my girlfriend. I wanted to get a, I still wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to go into politics and help people and be a big shot. And I wanted to have enlightenment. <laughs> and Rose is saying, no, no, you, you gotta, you gotta, you know, you gotta focus. You gotta, uh, so that was, you know, it took me a long time. Cause I was the guy that was filling up the, doing all the lectures, filling up the hose, getting 200 people to come to a lecture that Rose would, by the time he finished, there would be 30 people left. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I'd work three, I'd work for a month and a half to get 200 people in the room and he'd clear them out in about an hour, you know, because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that. You know, funny thing is there's an audible audio version of my book coming up. And, uh, the, the, the producer who's working on, it's a really fascinating guy. Uh, he's from lizard Lake, North Carolina. Um, and he's a real, uh, his southern accent is really, really thick. But it turns out he's also an incredible keyboard guy, besides being a sound engineer. And he travels with Aerosmith and all these bands. And, you know, so he's so anyway, he's uh, I still don't know whether he's got a spiritual bone in his body, but his name's Matt Horton. And I start reading the book. We get to the second chapter and and, and I'm reading and he's in the booth, the sound booth. And he says he comes on the headphones and he says, son, even though he's a lot younger than me, son. What are you thinking? He said, nobody's going to buy this book. <laughs> I, I said, Matt, why not? He says, you're telling people the truth. <laughs> he says, people don't want the truth for free and you want them to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was roses. You know, I went to see um, Andrew Cohen one time to give a talk and, uh, I don't remember much, a lot of what he said, but he really, I really was impressed when he said, he said at one point, he said, I have a bad habit. He said, I tend to tell people the truth and that tends to engender rage. 
<laughs> you know? And so Rose, it Rose engendered a, a, a lot of rage. I had, um, you know, even people that have, that I'll tell my Rose stories to, you know, who will be, you know, become very sympathetic, you know? I mean, I, I look at that uh, where he really tore into me at the farm at the end of my first visit to him at the farm when I'm telling him about I want to be into politics. And he ends up saying, you know, you know, when I look at you, I see a cock on a woodpile crow into the hands. He said, because you don't care about anybody but yourself. He said, he said, uh, he said, it's not enough that your parents love you and your friends love you and your brothers love you. He said, no, you're not going to be satisfied until the whole damn world loves you. He said, hey, you're a smart guy. Maybe you can pull it off. He said, "If that, I got it memorized. See, if because <laughs> I was there. If you, if you want to, uh, if that's what you want out of life, I don't won't stand in your way. But please, don't come down here giving me that bullshit about helping people. Man, I mean, I was. It, it took me two weeks to to process that. I mean, he took me off at the knees. I was devastated. And for the first week, I was I wanted to kill him." went back to Pittsburgh. But, you know, eventually I said, he's, he's right. He's absolutely right. And when I look back, that was one of the greatest things I am most thankful for. I couldn't have made a bigger mistake in my life if I'd gone into politics. You know, he, you know, I, I'm so, so grateful for him doing it. And, you know, and you have to look at him and think, you know, he'd worked, waited all his life. He was in his 50s. He was in his late 50s by then. He had no students. As I mentioned earlier, I was his very first student. Um, he recognized in me because he told me later, he recognized in me the kind of, that I had the talent to, to get him a group, to, to get, to turn him into a teacher. And yet, he risked it all by really just tearing into me like that. You know, and oh, yeah. and the and the fact that I would, you know, he would never, and yeah, and I would say that, you know, of course, he has a really, fa he had a fantastic intuition, but, you know, the roll of the dice would be ninety five percent chance he'll never see me again. But you know, he, you know, he was he, he he called it the way he saw it, regardless, you know, um, and I think that took a lot of uh, so rather than me looking back at him, hell, oh, what a mean man he was, you know, to do that, you know, say that to a young man. No, I don't see it that way at all. But a lot of people do. <clears throat> How did you put up with that? Why did you put up with that man? You know, I'm a crazy. It it's, it's quite a conundrum that one says your mission statement for your foundation is uh, the most important thing that you could have purpose and bring that. But it's the thing that people are half running away from. Right, they, right. they don't want to right, right. sleep. Exactly. It's funny that you said, by the way, you're echoing, you're, 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 you're echoing on me, but um, your microphone's echoing. Mm -hmm. But I saw this, um, um, Heck, it might have been not too long after, you know, during your era of the of the South Maui Symposium era, uh, the early '90s, mid '90s, early '90s, I would say. And I was, well, I was just flicked on the TV set, and um, and I got on some kind of an educational television channel or something, 
And all there was, was a young, it was obviously a young woman, maybe in her mid twenties. And she was on sitting on a stool and you could see her from the back. And she was watching a, uh, a screen in front of her. And on the screen that she was watching was a, a, a young woman who was obviously had had a stroke or something like that. And, um, and she was, she was spastic all like this and her eyes were only half open and there were uh, two nurses, two or three nurses and they were um, yelling at her and shaking her, basically trying to wake her up. And, uh, and they were doing all kinds of stuff and she was angry and she she's flinging at them. Leave, let me alone. Let me sleep. Let me go back to sleep. And they wouldn't let her go, you know? And so finally they hand her a toothbrush and she takes the toothbrush and starts brushing her nose. And, and the one nurse says to the other nurse, she says, well, at least that's better than yesterday because she kind of has an idea of what the darn toothbrush is for, you know? So we've made a little progress there, you know? And just then the guy behind the camera, you can't, a disembodied voice comes up and he says, does it bother you to watch yourself like that? And all this, and all of a sudden, the girl on the thing, she just looks, turns around, and she's, she's a beautiful girl, and she's obviously perfectly healthy, you know. And she looks at the cameraman or whoever the guy was, and she says, "Oh no, not at all." She said, "I love watching myself like that. It just makes me so grateful for all those people who never gave up on me." And I start to cry when I when I and I think about it even now. So I caught that. It was only like a minute. I don't know what disease she had or whether she had a stroke. I don't know what. And I started bawling, Sean, because, because I was that stroke victim. And I was the one. We all are that stroke victim. And we all want to just be left alone so we can sleep. And if we're lucky, if we're really, really lucky, as I was, to have the Richard Rose and the Lewis Mobley and the Bill Richards and the monks at Nepkin Abbey, um, you know, who won't give up on you, who are always prodding you, who are always confronting you, who are always sticking a finger in your eye and spoiling your fun and, you know, and, and waking you up. You know, I haven't read <clears throat> a lot of people think I'm Jed McKenna and I want to go live here that I'm not Jed McKenna. Um, and I've never even read his books, but I did. Somebody did send me that quote from him when he says that if it if you, if it if it's something that comforts you, if it's something that makes you feel good, if it makes you feel uh, uh, loving and then he says that he's probably not you're probably not waking up. He said, if it feels like you're being everything you've ever believed in is being excoriated if it seems like you're being turned inside out if it means if everything that you've ever believed in is failing you he says you're probably you know you're probably waking up you know and uh no it's no fun it's no fun for a woman to have a baby it's no fun for a stroke victim to have to learn how to walk wake up again and turn you know but the but the but the game the candle is so worth it um i tell that story at the end of my book it's Dean Willeman, actually, I don't use his name, but he was the Duke of the G he was the Dean of the Duke Chapel. And he was, he's a wonderful man. I still know him. And he wrote the introduction, the preface to my book, brother John, and he was my campus uh, advisor at Duke. 
And after I got back from my spiritual experience in Baltimore, I went to see him and I was in his office and I told him the whole story and everything. And I was crying. And of course, all I did back then was cry. And he, he reached out and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Augie, I'm, there is no doubt in my mind that you have been seized by the hand of God. He said, uh, I'm just so glad that God has chosen a, a gentler path with me. And the next thing I knew, I'm standing in the middle of the beautiful Gothic Duke Chapel, all alone. There wasn't a soul in that chapel but me. And I'm standing there, and I'm just crying and crying and crying. And the only thought that was in my mind is, Father, forgive him. He knows not what he just said. I would go through a million times the agony I went through to find 1% of what I found. And to me, the, and I, I got into that with Rose, and so the, the, what I called the loneliness of Richard Rose, because no, nobody could really, there was not one person in the world that could look him in the eye and say, I understand, and really say, I understand. But the curse of anybody that's had a truly profound spiritual experience is that you can't communicate. Because if you really could communicate what was really there for people, they would drop everything. It would be like the apostles who would drop everything and follow Jesus, you know. You know. Yeah. They, they they can nod their head at you, they can say whatever, yeah, that's really a cool story. Yeah, yeah. But if you but if you but if they really literally don't just completely you know, um, you know I mean I, I met a guy at the, when I was studying theology. That was another thing I did. I went up to you know, speaking of the, the Catholic Church, which I went to St. John's University up in um, in uh, Collegeville, um, Minnesota, and I spent a semester up there studying theology. And it was one of the greatest things I ever did. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I met some, oh my God, I met some incredible, I met this guy who's still a really close friend of mine. I had an incredible life after death experience when he was only 17. And he's probably the most profound, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a wonderful guy. He's, but he is, he's obsessed. I mean, he is just absolutely doesn't want to talk about anything but mysticism. And he's married and has kids and he can't even talk to his wife. You know, I think I'm his only outlet. He's a wonderful guy. All he does, he drives a truck now and has all he does is listen to spiritual books um, while he's driving his truck. You know, anyway, um, but I met this other guy, this guy, Sandy, and um, and he and I ended up getting together and and always, you know, I, I, I took him to be kind of a, uh, goofy kind of guy in the beginning because he always had this really nice smile on his face but i noticed that he always went there's a monastery a benedictine monastery at saint john's saint john's is a benedictine university and they have a monastery there and so you can go to all the services like vespers and um they, they call it the hours in mepkin abbey you get up at three in the morning and you go to you go to vigils and then you go to a lauds and then you go to mass then you go to terse and so it goes all day long and uh, so you could do the same thing. And I noticed that Sandy would always be at these things, you know. So one day I, I, I'm talking to him and, um, and he was, a, it turned out he was a big shot, um, um, some kind of executive for some bank or some bank. I forget what it was. He was in New York, in the New York area too. And, I, and, um, and his wife died. And, um, and he started, you know, really, really doing the, what we taught back in the 1960s, an agonizing reappraisal. And, um, 
and he ended up leaving his job and decided to come up to St. John's and study theology. And then he was actually talked to this other woman into letting him build a hermitage in the back of her, of her, uh, she had a 10 acres or something. So he built, he was building a shack and he was going to move into a hermitage there, you know? And so I said to him, I said, I said, Sandy, I said, um, what are you saying? You just, you just walked in there to your boss's office and said, you quick. He said, no, Augie, that's not exactly how it happened. He said, it was more like I walked in there and I said, listen, you mofo, you, you could take this effing job and shove it right up your being. And then I just walked out. It was more like that. He said, and I said, you know, I said, Sandy, I said, you, you're always at every one of the services that, you know, he said, you always come to all the services. And I used to go to most of them, but it was hard because there was so much studying. It was a lot of study work that you had to do. Um, and you had to go to, you know, we we're going to class three or four days through three, three or four classes a day too. And so it was hard to do him, but I, he never missed He was always there. And I said, why do you do it? And he said, he said, because when I come to these services, he said, uh, he said, I can stand on the rim of the universe and stare into the chaos. I mean, he was an extremely, you know, a profound, profound guy. And, um, and, and that's the, people who have had a taste of that kind of thing. But I, who was, there's a guy that, that, that used to write these books about the diamond something or other. He was some kind of an in, Indian or something. And he was always worried. He had a whole philosophy built around futurism and about um, the dangers of futurism, of putting things off into the future. I don't, I forget. Um, but he used to start all of his talks um, by saying, uh, listen, I'm warning you right now. You know, if, if you get addicted to this stuff, he said, it's going to make your life a thousand times harder and blah, 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 blah. You know, he said, but you'll never be able to go back. You'll never be the same person. So if you have any qualms about it, I would suggest you leave right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I wrote an article for Forbes and I called it, um, the dark side of leadership. And it was really, I used leadership as, uh, but I was really talking about spirituality. And I used that quote from Apocalypse Now, where um, as they're going up the river, Willard, who's the assassin, who's going up to, to kill Kurtz, he's the cold-blooded assassin. He and the He and the chef get off the boat and go looking for mangoes. And they run into a tiger and the tiger chases them back to the boat. And the chef goes crazy and starts tearing off his clothes and he keeps screaming, never get out of the boat, never get out of the boat, never get out of the boat. I'll never get out of the boat again. I'll never get out of the boat. And a Willard who's played by uh, Martin Sheen, he's over there smoking a cigarette and he does this voiceover. You can read in his thoughts and he says, yeah, never get out of the boat. Never get out of the boat. God damn right. Unless you intend to take it all the way. And I wrote the rest of the article. I said, there comes a time when you got to get out of the boat. And this is what we're really scared of. We, and I called it in my book, I call it being trapped between heaven and earth. You want to keep one foot in the boat and one foot out the boat. Um, you want to keep one, you know, hang on to, to the world, the worldly compensations with one hand while reaching for enlightenment with the other. But I said, you've got to reach, get out of the boat. And if you get addicted to this stuff, what happens you, is you find out you got out of the boat a long time ago. 
you wake up one day and you realize you left, you got out of the boat a long time ago and you don't remember where you left the boat. You don't remember how to get back to the boat. And the one thing that you absolutely know for sure is even if you did find your way back to the boat, you'd never be happy again. You'd never fit in again with those people in the boat. You know, it reminds me of that scene in the Matrix when Morpheus is walking Neo on the street that looks like New York City or something. It's just crowded. There's tons of people. And they're in the Matrix. And Morpheus points at all these people and he says to Neo, he says, these people are not our enemies. They mean us no harm. But let me tell you something. Whatever you do, do not try to take the Matrix away from them. Because if you do, they will fight you with everything they have. And you can't go back to the boat because that's the matrix. And, you know, and, and your choices are to either keep your mouth shut and just pretend that you're really interested in who's going to win the Super Bowl <laughs> or open your mouth and get lynched. <laughs> It's like this girl I was dating one time. She said, I couldn't marry you. And I said, why not? I'm a nice guy. She said, I'd wake up one day and there'd be a note pinned to my pillow. Gone to Tibet. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, any more questions there, sir? Well, on, on that note, for those people who are trying to get out of the boat, halfway out of the boat, falling out of the boat, if they want to keep in touch with what you're up to, what would be the best way to do that? Well, the best way to do that is to come to my website, www.augusturak. That's one word, August like the month, Turak, T is in Tom, U-R-A-K. That's augusturak.com. Um, you can actually find a lot of my articles in Forbes. You can just go to Forbes.com and put August Turak in there, and you'll learn more about me than you care to know, uh, all the articles that I wrote for Forbes magazine. Um, you can also get my books, uh, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity, or Brother John, A Monk, A Pilgrim, and the Purpose of Life, which includes my $100,000 Templeton Prize winning essay, or most importantly, these days, uh, my book, um, Not Less Than Everything, One Man's Quest for, <clears throat> for an, uh, uh, Enlightenment, Spiritual Enlightenment. And by the way, we're if you come to my website, augusttrack.com, we're offering um, a Not Less Than Everything for 50% off. So you can save 50% off of what Amazon is charging for it right now. And, um, but of course you can get all of my books at Amazon and Walmart and Barnes and Noble and all that kind of good stuff. And, um, very nice. Very nice. Are there any, uh, any big endeavors that you have planned coming up in the near future? Well, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a process of putting together. So maybe be doing a workshop in California. Okay. Uh, from a couple of lectures and a, and a workshop out there. What's really got me excited, though, Sean, is that my first book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, is going to be turned into a video book. Wow. Interestingly, there's a there's a company called uh, Live Video Books, and they've come to the conclusion that we started with written books, then we moved to audible audio books, 
But now more people are learning by watching videos. And I saw this in spades, speaking of Israel with all the stuff that's going on. I sold my companies to an Israeli company and the CEO of that company and I became very close friends. So I go to Israel a lot. So I was in Israel last year and he's got a nine-year-old son and his son dazzled me because he knew everything about Napoleon's 1812 invasion of Russia. And I think like to think I know a few things and he straightened me out on a couple of things. And so I fell back on my home turf and started talking about the civil war. And this kid knew more about the civil war than I did. <laughs> and, and so I finally said to him, I said, you know, what books are you reading to learn? All? He says, I don't read any books. He said, I watch YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. So they're capitalizing on this by turning books into videos. So my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, um, is going to be turned into a video book. So we, it is already available as a hard copy and a soft copy and a audible through audible and audio book. But, um, um, now it's going to be a video book. So I'm excited about that. And they're spending it. They're going to spend a lot of money. I mean, I really, they spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on production. I'm wondering how they can, how they can recoup that money. So we'll, you know, but we'll see, but it will be a cool idea to have a, a, a video version. So a lot of it will be interviews with me and things like that uh, about the book. So that's pretty exciting stuff that's coming up, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, I'm probably going to go back to Spain for, Give a lecture, maybe go on another motorcycle trip. I've been going on these three-day motorcycle trips with a friend of mine in Spain. So I've been doing that, do that down in Peru. So life is good. And I have a 75-acre farm here. And so I'm, I'm going to become an expert in solar science. <laughs> <laughs> we got cattle here and I, and I, and I, raise, I, I raise a lot of fruits and vegetables and stuff. And so. Life is pretty good. I don't have any uh, any complaints. But uh, um, I also, you know, I'm very pleased that, you know, um, Michael Keaton gave me a really good blurb for not less than everything. Very impressive. You know, so uh, you know, he is a, um, he, he read my first book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, and was so impressed with it. You know, of course, he's Batman and. He's, he's right now, he's supposed to be in England doing a um, reboot of Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice 2. But um, he went to the monastery. I was down at the at trap at the at Mepkin Abbey, and um, and uh, the one of the uh, um, monks said to me, you know, hey, by the way, he said, you know, Michael Keaton was here. And I said, Michael Keaton, yeah, yeah, he came and spent a day, he spent a day, and he said, uh, um, he said it was because he read your book, Business Secrets of Trappist Monk. So mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Yeah. Appreciate your time. It was great. I, I, I enjoyed yeah. it. I enjoyed it. It was great, Sean. Good questions, you know, and yeah. uh, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed it. It's the only thing I, it's talk, talking about this stuff and living it is all, all there right. is to my life. It's the only thing that makes any sense to me. Right. I hear you. Well, best of luck with all that. I will put a link to your book on my site and uh, into your website as well. You show us. Yeah, and I tell you, if you're, uh, you know, in the meantime, if you just want to put something up on your website or I don't know if you send out emails or anything like that, just tell people they can get this book for, they can get the video, the, um, they can get the electronic version for 99 cents. Right, I can't do that. Uh, on Amazon, you can just go to Amazon and get get the link and just 
cut and paste it onto your website and say you can get this you know, for a very limited time. You can get it for 99 cents. We're doing really well. We're like, the, for a couple of weeks, we were the number one uh, in the mystical spirituality category on. So. Nice. All right, my friend. Well, God bless. Yeah. And I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, and uh, oh, by the way, don't forget to put a review on Amazon for me, buddy. Okay. Yes, everybody who reads the book. Everybody that reads the book, please put a put an Amazon uh, re review up, and don't be shy about sharing your reactions with your friends and family. Because the only way to sell books these days, as Doctor Nevins knows, is through word of mouth. Nothing else seems to work. Yeah, reviews help a lot. I All right. God Thank bless. You. Yeah. See you later. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. For more information about today's guest, as well as more interviews, books, and other resources, go to spiritualteachers.org. That's spiritualteachers.org.